Welcome to My Best Fail. I'm your host, Diana Lanham, and I am so happy that you're here with us. Today's story is a great reminder about how we lead with grace and kindness when dealing with others. You never know the battles and burdens that people are dealing with on a daily basis. I am so thankful that our guest today decided to share her story with us. Please welcome Sarah Bailey. Sarah, thank you so much for being here today. And I just want to remind you, this is a safe place. If you need to stop, let me know. Okay, thank you so much. So the story of your best fail, even though your fail or setback was fairly recent, the journey to where you are today really started about 20 years ago. So why don't you take us back there and give us some background about who you are and how this part of your life began. So I'd gone to college after high school for uh, fine arts and ceramics and ceramic engineering. And then I learned the difference between grants and student loans and realized the amount of debt that I would have. And I decided that I didn't have the exact career trajectory that I needed. I could figure out shelter. I knew how to sew. I could figure out clothing, but I didn't know anything about growing food or really how to feed myself. I could cook, but I didn't know how, like, exactly where it all came from. So when you were thinking about how you were going to live and you knew that you were going to have student debt, you actually started thinking about how you were going to completely survive and take care of yourself, like grow your own food, sew your own clothes, make your own house? Right, I had someone went back to the basics and was like, can I accomplish these things first? And then if I can accomplish these, I'll then choose a profession or some kind of like later on career trajectory or career, career path. Okay, just so you know, that's amazing. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had a thought like that in my life. So this is, and that's new. This is not something I knew about. Okay. Yet, so I love that. So, okay, I interrupted. Keep going. No, you're fine. So I went home and then there was an organic farm down the road. And so I started off picking rocks for like $5 an hour. And I approached it as just I was like getting paid to work out and it was outdoors. And I was also learning not only about just how to identify different vegetables and fruits, but how they grew and like the seasonally, um, how to eat and like kind of source from what grew in and around. This was actually New Hampshire. And so I did that. And that's where I met my future husband. We ran the farm for about seven years because the, the manager at that time uh, retired. And so we ran the farm for seven years. We had my daughter in 2006 and then my son in 2008. Were you living like on a commune? Or were like, <laughs> was it just the two of you running mm -hmm. this farm? Mm -hmm. and, and what was that like? So it was an elderly couple that had 40 acres in New Hampshire and it was a certified organic farm. And there was a three room like farmhouse cabin. And so we rented that and then worked the farm for about seven years. And then the, oh. the last two, we ended up leasing the farm. So we no longer worked for, for the couple, we ended up just paying them rent, and then we're able to kind of do our own plans and own preparing for the seasons. I'm assuming if it was a working farm, so you were, were you selling to like stores and mm -hmm. grocers, or were you doing just farmers markets, or what were you doing? We did it all. So we did 11 different restaurants in the area, three farmers markets, and then we had 160 member year-round CSA. The gentleman had um, done work, engineering work, in his previous career paths, and so there was three different greenhouses that used like clean oil or like waste oil to burn a four-foot flame in a water jacket, and then it was actually it was radiant tube heating that you might use in your house. But we dug trenches for the greenhouse beds, and so we were able to grow year-round in New Hampshire. Oh wow, that's amazing! <laughs> You're so brilliant. You are. It was a really good just learning experience, again, too, because of the food piece and learning how it was small fruits and vegetables, and eventually we did chickens and eggs, but also, too, just because it had a scientific aspect to the farm. When we originally got there, they were doing biodiesel, but there was actually a way to do it without creating biodiesel, because there's actually some, like, really toxic byproducts. So we just used, like, waste vegetable oil or, or waste, like, motor oil 
to burn the flame. So, and actually that kind of ties in with um, what I know of you and, and your scientific brain, and I know that you love that. So I know kind of after the seven, well, nine years, mm -hmm. things were starting to take a, a turn a little bit in your relationship, right? Mm -hmm. And you were thinking a little bit beyond the farm mm -hmm. and that relationship and how you could move forward and maybe change your life a little bit, mm -hmm. right? Talk to me about that and the decisions you made. So as we approached the end of our second year leasing the farm, the couple had decided to move it into development and no longer wanted to renew the lease. And I was like, oh my gosh, we're farmers that don't have land. Like that's, that's not gonna work out. At the same time, personally, I was realizing that this person probably wasn't going to be a good path going forward. There were times that he would come home and just, I would be crying and I'd have the two little ones with me. And so I didn't wanna be working at like the local gas station and on public assistance. And I was like, I need to figure out how to provide for my two kids. But I only had the two years of art school. And so I was like, I need to figure out my education piece. And I was actually out delivering CSA shares. And I saw a sign that said, US Army hiring. And in high school, I knew nothing about the Army. And so I didn't know that they paid you or <laughs> that it was a profession. Mm -hmm. And so I went and talked to a recruiter. And he explained about the GI Bill and tuition assistance and all the different opportunities. And also the fact that they would move us across the country or anywhere in the country. And I had spent 25 years in New Hampshire at this point, so I was like ready to not chop wood and deal with snow. I was ready for just a, a career change with the added idea that it may not be a lifestyle, so try to pick a profession that would transition back into civilian life. And so I took the ASVAB and I scored well, and then he gave me like the career booklet. He's like, what do you want to do? And I, I knew about tech and computers, didn't own a cell phone at the time, but I knew that they were popular and that this seemed like a profession that eventually would lead to my financial independence or security just to provide for my kids. And so I joined the military in January 2010 to do communications. It was exciting at the time. I, I, I kind of treated it as an adventure. So where did you go to boot camp? I was at Fort Gordon in, in uh, Augusta, Georgia. And did you move the whole family there? I was in basic for four months and in South Carolina. And then when I got to AIT, it was a nine month period. And so I moved the family down there for that. And how old were your kids at the time? Uh, four and six. I know that you had some strains with the relationship then, because it's a story that we'll get into a little bit mm -hmm. later. How did that go with you deciding to join the military and move the family mm -hmm. several straight states over? I think he could appreciate the, light, the longer term plan of getting out and being able to afford a property or a house, because the original plan was to then return back to a, a farming or agricultural lifestyle and have that be a part of, of the kids' upbringing. I think it also presented the idea that he could be a stay-at-home father, stay-at-home dad, and just you know take care of those youngest ones, because the way the military was working, it would be enough for us to just have a, a, a single working parent and still maintain a livelihood. In the beginning, it was, he was supportive of it, and I think it was definitely a culture shock, being he had long hair, hippie guy in, in, in New Hampshire to living on a military base in, in Georgia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and when he came down in the middle of summer, so it was definitely uh, a bit of a culture shock for him. So what was it like being in boot camp? I didn't find the tasks overly like hard or, I mean, they wake up in the middle of the night to go out and do PT or you have to carry buckets of water and stuff. The hardest part is being away from my family and the kids because at that point I had never left and we had contact maybe once a week if like the platoon did well. Oh. But it was really interesting just being with, there were, I think there were 60 girls in my, in, my, in my bunk. And so just hearing about all their experiences and their stories and then just, I, le I learned a lot just from different people's backgrounds and kind of what all brought us to kind of cross paths. And so how long was that? Uh, nine months. Kind of walk us through, after you went through the boot camp, 
and you know graduating from that like what was the path once you finished that mm-hmm. and where did you move after okay. that so i graduated and then uh, we were giving orders to korea my daughter came um, back and said she had hypothyroidism and so they canceled those orders and i remember going to see my branch manager and was like where can we go in the country and she goes well there's an opening in seattle and I was like, I like coffee, I like salmon, it's the same latitude, this should all work. And I knew that there was a burgeoning tech community above it. I was like, this could be a good place for us to, to land, given that the tentative plan at the time was to then transition out after my contract. Yeah. So she gave us orders to Seattle. We went back to New Hampshire to just finish packing up our rest of our stuff. And then we drove across the country for a week and arrived here Halloween weekend. <laughs> but then we went, we found a hotel in Yelm, which is actually ended up where we ended up living. And we were there for about a week and we found a house. And then I started working on base yes. at uh, Fort Lewis. And Yom is way out there. It's still, it's like being on a farm still. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very rural. So it, everything felt very familiar. Yeah. And then there was just this military base that was 10 miles away. And so uh, I would work on base. And then that worked for, I went to 2012, um, a deployment came up, which I knew our brigades were on rotation and that at some point that would uh, arise. And so I left for Afghanistan in November of 2012. And how long were you in Afghanistan? Just under a year. It, was about, it ended up being about 10 months. And what was that like? I was combat support, so I didn't see a lot of dangerous areas. Um, a lot of it was just doing help desk, making sure the network stayed up. I volunteered to man the personal network for like soldiers who needed to do schoolwork or, or call families, in addition to doing like my day job, which was just managing like the military networks, which by the time I'd gotten there, I'd figured out tuition assistance, and that allowed me to start my schooling because I needed something to take up the extra hours that we had there. And so I ended up doing my undergraduate during uh, the deployment. And then when I returned home, I was able to finish off two masters before I got out. Wait, what? <laughs> what did you say? Did you say you finished up two master's degrees? Mm-hmm. Sarah. <laughs> it was, it's a really great online school. You just and like, so... threw that out there. Like everybody does that. <laughs> I did the undergraduate awesome. in computer science. And then, thank you. And then my master's was in cybersecurity and information technology management, just because I wanted to kind of, after I did computer science, focus on that area. And then as I was coming up to my last year of uh, service, I wanted to also understand like the business sects. I had envisioned working for an enterprise or a company of some sort. And I wanted to kind of understand also the business side because it's really like being able to bridge those two pieces of a company. And so I ended up doing the MBA my last year. So you went from picking up rocks, mm-hmm. your first job, yeah. <laughs> to having two masters and working cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Or that was your goal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. amazing. That was the last piece was just yeah. to go out and switch to the military and get a job. But thank you. <laughs> but you know, being in Seattle was a perfect place for you because mm-hmm. that's just one of the hubs here. And mm-hmm. yeah. So because you and I worked at the same company, that's how we <clears> met in 2017. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about how you came to the corporation, which is a very large retail corporation. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about how that whole, that whole thing worked out. So as I was just in the military, they had a class for senior NCOs and officers that kind of got you reacquainted with civilian life. Just simple things as going by your first name. It was, it's, it's some baby steps to get used to that again. It's a different mindset just because you're in combat boots and a uniform every day and having to go, okay, well now I'm wearing business casual every day. And what exactly is that? And what is interview attire? And just getting, to, again, reacquainted to civilian life, but in an area and in a point in your life, which was very different than when you came into the military. Well, and also, <laughs> when I met you, you also looked very different, right? <laughs> when I met Sarah, Sarah had these beautiful dreadlocks. 
And mm -hmm. I, I remember I loved them. They were fantastic and they were so your personality. <laughs> and you had those the entire 2017 I met mm -hmm. you, so you've had those forever. Mm -hmm. And you just cut them off yourself. Yes. You did your own buzz cut. <laughs> Thanks. And how does that, how was that transition? Uh, it was, I mean, I was ready for it. And the hair that I wanted, which was just low maintenance and not frizzing in the Seattle weather. <laughs> not frizzing in the Seattle weather. Well, you know what, too? I just have to say, this, the Sarah that I met in 2017 is not the Sarah that's sitting in front of me now. It isn't. And oh. I mean, even though you've always been super lovely and you have a beautiful smile and lots of energy and you're always doing a million things, you're doing the work of five people always. So... Let's talk about how you came to the company that we were working with, because mm -hmm. that it's a big company and it mm -hmm. was very competitive. And you're mm -hmm. and you're also going into cybersecurity, mm -hmm. which was, you know, way back when on the farm when you decided that you wanted to change your situation. Mm -hmm. People think about doing that all the time, and sometimes they never do anything. Mm -hmm. You did it, and now you have come on what ten or more years full circle. You came back. And you're now interviewing to work at one of the biggest companies in the world in the cybersecurity department. Mm -hmm. You did exactly what you said, and mm -hmm. you did it with flair, right? <laughs> right. So talk to, talk to me about that whole mm -hmm. transition and how that felt to finally, mm -hmm. finally kind of land your dream position mm -hmm. in your dream company. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd known about the company for a long time, and so I'd reached out to the Human Resources Department to help facilitate some of the classes or like soft-scale interviews for the military class. One of the recruiters and I were talking, and, and she goes, let me take a look at your resume. And then I sent it over to her, and she goes, we have a couple of positions. Why don't you come up uh, middle, middle of August and interview? And I was like, okay. So I got through graduation, and then I finished off my military checklist of transitioning out. And then it was the beginning of August, and I was like, oh my gosh, I need to go find a job. Also super pregnant at the time. So you're transitioning out of the military and trans transitioning back into civilian life. You're super pregnant. You're contemplating going into a career that you've been working towards for years, and which means working for a corporation and a new way of working and living. Uh, that's a lot of pressure. It's a lot. It, it's a uh, male-dominated field, and I'm coming out of the military, so I don't necessarily have the qualifications or the same background as maybe some of my uh, competing applicants. So I just came to the interview, and I think I was just super transparent <laughs> and honest with what I what I knew and where I'd come from. And then also the things I didn't know, but the things that I, were, I was interested in and wanted to learn. And so within, I think it was six days, they called back and I had landed the job. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> and then I had to figure out my hair. <laughs> That's right. Because I had very curly hair from the military. And then it was a lot of breakage from having to wear it in a bun. And so I remember I called my recruiter back and I was like, can I lock my hair? Because that would prevent me having to flat iron just to watch it frizz. When we were working together, everyone relayed on me to mm -hmm. be their right-hand person, or if they needed information or anything, mm -hmm. they would come to me. And when I needed something, I always came to Sarah. <laughs> because you either, if you didn't have the answer, mm -hmm. you would go find it and you got it done. I want things done really fast. Mm -hmm. I just want it done, I need it now, whatever. And you were like, if you do it this way, and you go investigate and do that. And I'm like, no, I don't have time for that. And you're like, yeah, I'll just do it. And I was like, okay, that, this is a perfect relationship. <laughs> it was awesome. But no, you were just so great about seeing you know, the whole picture and the whole problem, which is one of the reasons that you were hired, because you're so brilliant. And that is a part of your investigative personality, right? Mm -hmm. So you were definitely a value add to the team. When I was getting to know you, I was starting to notice cracks. Uh, because you're so efficient, always so brilliant, and just always just go, go, go. And I was starting to notice 
just cracks. You weren't showing up as much. Um, and this was before we were remote. You were always very tired, which, you know, you run at Mach 90. I don't know how you wouldn't be. I was talking to you one minute and the next minute, oh, where's Sarah? Sarah had to leave, mm-hmm. right? So let's talk about when things started to slip a little bit at work mm-hmm. and why. Once I landed the role, I had my daughter two months later, and then I came back from maternity leave in January of 2016. And I knew that I had a great job. I was traveling from Yelm to Seattle, and people were like, that's a crazy commute. And I was like, my job's worth it. This this is the best job. I knew that I had what I originally set out to do. I had accomplished so far that I had financial security for my children. I had two additional girls since the farm, so I I had four kiddos now. But I knew that I had the means to to provide for them. And I had a chance to to leave a very awful relationship. And so uh, six months after having my daughter and then then starting um, at the company, I filed for divorce. It didn't go over well. (laughs) He acted as though it just wasn't happening. And it took over a year and a half to finalize. I'm assuming this isn't something that happened overnight, right? This your husband's bad behavior. No. So is this something that you were aware of when you first met him and and started having children? When did that start happening? When I first met him, um, I think it was probably, it was good for me three weeks. And then he just had one night where he just screamed at me. And then immediately it was flipped from, I'm so angry with you to, oh, I just care about you so much. That's why I'm, I'm so passionate about what I was yelling at you about. And how old were you at this time? 19. 19. And so kind of, I was like, oh, okay. Like, and he'd had a rough upbringing. And so I was like, I can kind of see maybe what, how, how you would approach that. And then um, about a year into the relationship is when I got pregnant with my eldest daughter. And I had this moment where I was like, I can, I can fix this. I can make this better. We can be a happy family. And I think I had that kind of attitude or mantra for about two years. Until after I had my son, and he was awful. And then I realized at that point that I would have to somehow untangle our paths and find a different path for me and my two kids, one that I could, I could support and provide. And so that's what led us into like the military and then to the job, to where I had financial security. What kind of relationship did you have? I mean, and, and again, you, don't, you only have to say what you feel like comfortable saying, right? But was he just yelling at you, or was it? A, did you know that there was there was more going on? I mean, did you know then that it was slowly going to just continue to escalate? I had read articles and read things, and I, I you always hear about the same uh, escalation yeah. of, of force, basically. It's a military term too, escalation of force and and the path. And there are moments when I I, I was trying to just keep things stalled, knowing that this was the road eventually that we would go down, stalled until I had enough time to actually, once I had, once I had the means to then leave, to educate myself on how to leave because I'd never been to court. I didn't have, I didn't, I don't know many attorneys and just all the processes and paperwork and appointments that go along with that. Um, while also trying to obviously maintain my job and maintain relationship with the children because at this point um, I was the only stable parent and the babies don't remember this, but the elder two, their relationship with their father started just deteriorating because when I wasn't around, he was then very angry with them. Were you guys in danger? 
I'd like to say that we weren't, but the searing irony that I've seen in all of this is that I ended up working and falling in love with a profession where I maintained security for an enterprise when personally I couldn't enter my own. So, no. You know, you're very lucky, as much as you're unlucky in this situation, you're very lucky that you had the wherewithal, I guess, to recognize that you were not gonna be able to stay in that relationship and that you were going to do something to turn it around so that you could leave and take care of your children. Mm -hmm. There are so many women who reach that point and they don't know where to start. Just like what you said about, you know, you'd never been to court, you didn't know the processes. Mm -hmm. I think that not only are you incredibly brave, but you were very lucky that you were one of those women who found a way to move forward because a lot of women don't have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. He was with the kids full time. Mm -hmm. And so what was that like at home for them? I mean, they had to raise themselves. He had, I think, surgeries every single year we were in the military. There were lots, he, he would drink a lot. Um, and so there were a lot of accidents. He fell off porches, tore his Achilles, tore his meniscus twice. Once when I was actually in Afghanistan, I came home on Red Cross message and I had 10 days. And so I packed up freezer meals and ma made a bunch of meals, put them in the freezer and then gave them like Capri Suns and granola bars. And I was like, I have to leave guys. I'll be home in summer. <laughs> and he was in traction in the back, in the back bedroom because he'd broken his neck oh my gosh. by tumbling off the porch. We kind of, the three of us banded together. We would go grocery shopping together and do all of our um, kind of errands and chores and things. And there was a distance, uh, even I think even as younger children, with their father. He didn't enroll them in school on time. Attendance was spotty at best. Um, and this continued on to uh, when we were in Yelm and, and throughout their uh, throughout elementary, uh, elementary school. He just would talk about the family he wanted or the person he wanted to be, but his actions couldn't have been more opposite. And so, again, we just learned to, to band together and that it was kind of the, the three of us until um, we had my younger two. I want to revisit the moment he called the cops on you and then mm -hmm. you ended up getting arrested for domestic mm -hmm. violence and not him. Mm -hmm. I still don't understand that. Are you comfortable talking mm -hmm. about that? Mm -hmm. um, so it happened um, actually at the neighbor's house, but they were super close houses and he'd wanted the kids to come back to his house and for, well, for all of us to go back and sleep at his house, even though it was my, it was my weekend. And so um, he, he came over a few times and the last time he came over, he went to take my daughter out of the car. And so I got in between them and I was just like, stop, like, this is my time. And I was putting my hands up and then he shoved me and then I put my hands on him to push him back and say like, this is our time, like you need to leave. This isn't even property, like go home. And it was in that moment that the top of his t-shirt uh, had, had torn. So he left, I'm gonna call the sheriffs. And I was like, what are they gonna do? Like put the kids to bed? Like I did, had no idea what could be or what, what would be happening was wrong. And so they showed up and they talked to him first and then they came to my, the neighbor's residence and I told them what happened. And then they went back to their car to talk and they came back and said, we're arresting you for domestic violence. And I was like, I was floored. And I asked them and they said, well, he said he, did, he didn't put his hands on you, but you told us what happened and that you put your hands on him. And you got arrested I, for that because you tore his t-shirt? Technically it's, Assault is any unwanted touch, which was super helpful. And there was nothing else that happened. I went to jail for three days, <laughs> and I was terrified because I was like, "This is." I've, I think I'd watched Orange Is the New Black for a couple times, but I had no idea what I was like. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" 
Um, so I got there. I think I stayed in my bed for two days on the top bunk because I was just upset and crying. And then learning that I wouldn't be released until Monday afternoon. I was worried about my job. I was worried about everything that I had built so far and how all of this would eventually play out. Did that happen when you were working with me? It happened uh, in June of 2017. Oh, so it was just before we met. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I don't remember that. Like, I would have remembered that, mm-hmm. right? And at this point, you had already filed for divorce. You were fully divorced. You were, were fully was, divorced. signed. Mm-hmm. And so you had joint custody. Yes. Yeah. And so when you went to jail, did he end up having full custody of the kids? Yeah, he took out, a, it was a civil protection order in which he was awarded temporary custody. And then I had the no custody um, due to the criminal order. And so I had two concurrent cases. Um, I had supervised visitation with my kids, which... I'm thankful that I had that at the minimum, but at the time it was awful because I just wanted to be mom. And now that I'd finally gotten him out of my life and I had a house, it was still in Yelm, I had a space for us to just be a family on the weekends, I now couldn't have that. But we made it work. I didn't have trick-or-treating weekends, so we just did it the weekend before. And then we did... um, Supervised visitation, we had, uh, we actually didn't end up moving to like a, a state facility because I wanted them to document the times he was changing, the times he wouldn't bring them. This awful diaper rash, like just the, the abuse that was happening at the house that needed to be done by like a, an unbiased agency. There was a small house fire, Bella broke her leg. It was an awful year because this went on for a whole year. That must have been so terrifying to know that your kids were with somebody that was not managing them, wasn't watching them, Mm -hmm. and was actually a danger not only to himself, but he could put the kids in danger. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna ask you something that you told me. Mm -hmm. So what was the, there was a frying pan incident. Do you remember you told me that? Yeah. What was that about? And when did that happen? So that was in February. Um, So our divorce was finalized in April. This was in February. Uh, I met him at the Y and picked up the kids and brought them back to Yelm. And we were still deciding about different property and different items. Um, I had already moved out and got my own place, but I hadn't yet come to get all my stuff. And so I brought the kids home. He showed up about an hour later and was drinking and was very irate. We started talking and then it went on for about two hours or so, about midnight. And then usually when I was in that side of Yelm, I would leave at 3.30, 4 o'clock for work because it was a two and a half hour-ish commute. And so it was getting close. I was like, it's late, I'm gonna go home. And I actually went to the front door and he like slammed the door shut and said, you're not leaving. And I was like, and he'd never at that time restricted me from leaving for work. Like that was like always the, the common mindset was this is what pays the bills. Let's not mess work up. Because he wasn't working? No. He's, so he wasn't working at all? No, he never worked. Ever? He had an intermittent like uh, seasonal farm type enterprise or activities in Yelm. He had a gig moving boxes for for a bit, but nothing steady, nothing substantial. So you guys were divorced and you were supporting him? Yes, I had alimony and child support. And at this time Mm -hmm. you were living in separate houses? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. I had my own residence, but he was either uh, assistance um, or just the alimony and child support. I ended up moving into my van for (laughs) a period because I couldn't afford to commute back and forth and it didn't make much sense to come home to an empty house. So I just stayed in my van. I was able to work in Seattle because the mindset was I have to keep this job. This is the piece that will eventually help unravel this whole mess. And so what happened Mm -hmm. that night when he wouldn't let you go to work? I was horrified. I was like, 
I have to leave. The traffic's going to be bad. I'm already exhausted. I was crying at the time. I've been crying more. And then um, I went to sit on the couch, and he came over to me, and then he grabbed, it was a yellow velvet pillow, and started to smell at me. Were the kids there? And they were upstairs in bed, but they heard some commotion, and they came down, and he, like, chewed them back up so they went back up to sleep. Did they see that? I don't know, because I was on the couch, and he was on top of me. And so I was hitting his back, trying to, like, get him off of me because there were periods I couldn't breathe. Um, and I was concerned just about having visible inju- injuries and then having him to go to work. Having to come into work. Eventually I did get him off of me and then he, he still had my keys and we went upstairs and gave him back to me about 8.30 in the morning, not thinking I got my keys and <laughs> I drove into work. <laughs> and I came into work on a Wednesday, say. And I was still wearing the same clothes I'd worn the day before. I looked awful. And so I sat down and a friend of mine came over and was like, hey, do you want to go talk in a room? I was like, I'd love to go talk in a room. And that's when I started calling like, different outreach programs and trying to educate myself more on how to address this legally so that I could protect myself, protect my children, and protect, protect my job. Because this was a world that I hadn't navigated at all. But how come you didn't call the police when he was smothering you, trying to smother you? My first thought was to get my keys and get to work and just get to an area where I could talk to people or talk to f- friends and figure out what to do. But why would you not call the police if somebody just tried to kill you? It I don't wasn't, understand that. It wasn't the first time that he had been very physical with me. And so I did know at which thresholds. This was prior to um, the incident where I was arrested for domestic violence. So I didn't understand the different thresholds of what, when was appropriate, was not appropriate, because he... He was trying to smother you with a pillow, mm-hmm. and you thought that that wasn't worthy of calling the police? I didn't know what would happen afterwards, and I didn't know, I didn't know how to, like, do I just call 911 because I'm, I'm not dying right now? He's left, he's back upstairs. Do I call a non-emergency line? Do I call an outreach center? I just didn't know which direction to go into that would, I guess, help solve the situation and not make it worse. You know, women always wonder, well, I think people in general, but especially with with mothers, mm-hmm. and it is a female thing where we wonder if we're, if we're over-worrying or if it's as, is it as bad as we think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, when people are in situations, especially when you've had a chance to calm down, mm-hmm. am I making too big of a thing with this? Mm-hmm. That shocks me that that happened. I remember when we earlier in our conversation, you were saying that he was yelling. It was apparent that he was given to dark moods, mm-hmm. things like that. But when did it start becoming physical? Because you alluded to other physical um, incidents. It was probably just towards the end of the military. Again, a very male-dominated environment. And at this point, I had made friends with a lot of my co- colleagues, um, both superiors and then my ones that were the same rank as myself. And we'd have them over for food, holiday dinners and things. And the more I think he saw that I was happy and had friends, the more it was, okay, well, you've got to be dating everyone. You've got to be, you, you, it took you two hours to grocery shop. You were gone too long. So I would rush and get home in, a, in an hour and a half. And he's like, see, I knew you were, you were out last time because it took you two hours. And so there was always this catch that would somehow justify his thoughts that I was out and around or that, you had another life. Right, that I was, I was doing things other than like, raising two kids and doing all the errands and the shopping and taking care of things. 
so it was towards the end of the military that it started getting um, more physical and just, it was always, could be explained with, oh, it was just an accident. Like he would walk by and just bump you or drop something, or it was never an outward, like I'm going to hit you up until the moment where he turned his mother away. It was always just like, like just bullying essentially. So Sarah, you are such a smart woman and such a capable woman, woman. And you obviously had the means to leave now. How come you didn't leave? I was trying to, but at the same time, I didn't feel smart. I didn't feel capable because on paper, I, I had degrees, I, I could figure things out. But how was I failing so miserably with my personal life? How come I couldn't figure out how to exactly leave this with my children? After the arrest piece, I, I lost, I, had, I lost, well, temporary custody. And then that stretched on for about a year. And then at that point, he was facing eviction. And he had the house fire and the broken leg. I had already moved closer to work, had my own place. And he contacted me and said, hey, I need to bring you the kids. And I was like, you need to go take care of paperwork first because I can't have the kids just unsupervised at my place. And so he went and... There's an irony there, right? You were taking care of the children. You were taking care of him. You were paying for everything. You were working full time. And I know cybersecurity. It's a 70-hour week job. And he wasn't working. He was in danger to all of you. And he was the one who got custody of the children. So he was a danger and you were not. You were their caretaker, basically, and the peacemaker. And you didn't have access to your kids. What happened, so let's go mm -hmm. back to when he called you mm -hmm. and basically was gonna get evicted mm -hmm. and he said that he was gonna bring the kids over mm -hmm. and you said he needed to clear that basically. Take care of paperwork. Yeah. Clear so what happened after that? He brought me the kids and I had, I had a house that had room for them because I had envisioned if it's not this year, it'll be soon that he doesn't have the means to provide for the children or like the ongoing CPS cases, investigations, something will break where I will be, have an opportunity to regain custody, and I want to be able to like have demonstrate demonstrate that I, I can I can provide for them. I can do this. Like I don't want there to be a gap in that. Mm. Um, and so he brought the kids, and then slowly but surely, piece by piece, dropping boxes off, dropping things off. And so by the start of April 2020, uh, with quarantine, he declared, "I'm going to quarantine with you." I was like. You're not on the lease, you can't live here. But then by that point, everything was shut down. So he moved in in April 2020. He started staying there in summer. He started talking about the end of 2018, intermittently throughout 2019, and then he was, yeah, full-time uh, beginning in 2020. Why did you allow that to happen? He now had property in the house or on, the, on, on, on our property, he things. had his belongings. And so when I talked to different agencies or tried to do um, like different aids and legal aids and ask for advice, they always came back to he has squatter's rights. And so he has stuff on the property, he can claim that he does live there. And I was like, but he's not on the lease. And they're like, if he gets mail there and he would eventually have things sent to him, like magazines and such, he has enough to then fight you for squatter's rights. And I didn't want to, I myself couldn't evict him because I was renting. So I had to go to a rental company 
didn't want to approach the rental company because they could say we're evicting you all. Yeah, because you're too much trouble. And I still don't have custody of my kids. So if he moved I, in, you had custody of the kids again. I don't have custody. I have access to the kids. Access to the kids. Right. Yeah. But it, if, he, if I go through and evict him, and I, even if I'm successful, he can then take the kids and leave because yeah. I don't have custody. So, so you're a prisoner, basically. It was not a prisoner. He was holding you hostage with the kids. Yeah. So he the, was using the kids as a bargaining mm -hmm. chip. Oh, it was, it's the best lateral in the world, it's, or yeah. collateral. The precautions we took for the pandemic to kind of protect us from this unknown threat also just kind of... Locked him in the house with you. I can't even imagine. A constant sabotage sometimes rather creative. Um, he was very much convinced that, again, I was dating everyone, even though we are still 100% divorced. If I took four hours to go grocery shopping with four kids during pandemic, I was taking too long. Um, if I went out to get school supplies or school clothes, I was meeting my gang members or... Um, I remember or, that. He yeah. thought you were part of a gang. Yeah. There was just, there was no end to the the ludicrous um, solutions he had for how I used my time outside the house, which, which at the time was very little. And so it was taking my debit card, taking my keys, taking my license. I had to get tabs so many times that they stopped giving me renewed tabs because he would take them off my car. And that was just with, just with physical mobility. We'd had slices in the carpet where I could hide keys. The kids knew that if I went down or if I was crying to come get my, my card and keys because there was very few weeks where I had both my card and keys in order to do anything. We couldn't make appointments. We couldn't doctor, dentist. I even just sleepovers with friends. Once things started beginning opening up, we rarely left the house. And when I did, it was for either groceries or, or, or school supplies and kids' clothes. And so what I was able to bring back, I would come down the next day and half of it would be gone. You can go to stores without a receipt if you have your card. If he had my card, you can scan it, and they will issue a gift card to that store. Because he wasn't working and he needed money. Right. So he's basically yeah. stealing the food from the family. Food, school supplies, uh, just anything that I bought, to, that, just consumables for the house. And then on a very serious mission, he had flipped his schedule to be 100% nocturnal because it allowed him access to the house when we were all trying to sleep and have a regular schedule. And so he was convinced that myself and my gang were, were tracking him and um, monitoring him. Yeah. The, again, the, the most ludicrous solutions or, or reasons for why things are happening. But this led him to take anything that plugged in apart, power strips, anything that remotely looked like, like light bulbs, anything electrical, he had to take it apart. I was very possessive <laughs> um, about my laptop and my phone. Um, not only because it was access to my job, but because I know, given the field that I work in, the types of sensitive and secure information that are on there. And so I had it, I would strap it to myself, and then I'd wear a, a big hoodie, and I would sleep face down behind double deadbolts to keep him, because he took the kids' laptops for school, he took their phones. I think for nine months they had old, like older flip phones that only worked on Wi-Fi. He was obsessive with communication and technology, didn't understand it and feared it, but was obsessive with taking and collecting and manipulating and, and trying to sabotage our stuff. He made a room for himself in the garage, uh, which 
as quarantine kind of wore on and we were working fully remote, he was convinced that I was not going to work. And so beating on my doors, he got through my bedroom door, he would come in, he'd cut my hair, he'd burn my hand with this, this torch he had, put alcohol drops or alcohol, rubbing alcohol in my contact drops. He would cut power in my room. I had to run extension cords out to my kids' rooms to charge my laptops, charge my phones. Uh, there was a piece where I took my bed spring or box spring and I barricaded my door and screwed it shut. And so I would unscrew it after work was done or on the weekends. If I was in the middle of a meeting, he would, if he got through, burst in and start yelling obscenities at me or being physical with me. And I was trying my best to just, when I had meetings, to be able to do video and audio and be engaged and present with the work I had to do. It didn't go so well. It didn't work out. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about that. That is, is a big turning point that has led you to where you're here today. Mm -hmm. But I remember you were supposed to meet me. Mm -hmm. I can't remember exactly if we were, go we were going somewhere to meet. And I had to come into Seattle for it. Mm -hmm. You know, you were coming in from Kent too, so it was far. And you weren't there. You didn't show up. And you had been so excited about it. We had something that we were going to talk about. It was just so weird to me. And I was like, hey, are you still coming? And then you wouldn't answer. And I finally talked to you later. And you said, no, I just, I got held up and I couldn't come. And it wasn't until a little while later that you admitted that he had locked you in the garage so that you could not go. And he took your phone and your laptop so you had no way of getting a hold of me. Mm -hmm. And I remember when you told me that, well, it was horrifying, but I was just stunned, basically from everything I knew about you and the kind of woman that you presented yourself to me and at work. It was kind of the first time that we had, we were really going beyond our work friendship. Mm -hmm. And that kind of opened up a, a can of worms. I was like, what? What do you mean he locked you in the garage? And mm -hmm. I just was like, and you were so, you had completely generalized it. And I'm like, does this happen often? And you're like, yeah, it happens all the time. And that's when you kind of opened up and we started talking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was about then, actually, when things, and I know that there were other incidents where he attacked you mm -hmm. and the kids also slept behind deadbolts, mm -hmm. all their rooms. Mm -hmm. I remember at work, there was starting to, your work was slipping. And it was only till later I realized it's because you had not even been, you weren't even sleeping for days in a row because you were up all day trying to work and then you were up all night trying to protect your family from him and yourself. We would sleep in shifts. And you'd sleep um, in shifts. Who was guarding either school laptops or worse things or who was guarding stuff upstairs. And then it just became, like the military, we had shifts. We had checklists of things we'd go and check to make sure the fridge was still plugged in. Just random things that ensured that we had like food the next day and we had if i had my my card and key make sure that they stayed put even just down to like checking mail just that we had checklists and we had like a shift change mm -hmm. so it's so hard because sorry <laughs> no no it's just i'm so it's just so hard because at work things had changed so drastically in the way that you performed at work mm -hmm. And even though this had been part of your life for so long and you had been managing it, it was getting to the point where it was no longer manageable. And it's also because your job was so demanding. 
And I remember someone talking to me and saying, you know, that maybe that you were on drugs because we couldn't explain your, the difference in your performance. You were clearly stressed. I mean, you went from rosy cheeks and mm -hmm. your beautiful smile today. You were weighed probably, what, 90 pounds. You, your eyes were sunken in. Your cheekbones were like razor blades. You were so tiny and you just were hunched. And it, it, there was a clear difference in how you looked and so something had to be going on, right? And I remember there were times when I was gonna come and hang out with you mm. and I, I was gonna come over to your house and you never wanted me to come to your house and I knew there was something about that. There was a couple times we went and we met in the Fred Meyer parking lot, remember the store parking lot? And you would sit in your car right next to me in my car and we'd roll our windows down and we would talk for hours. And you were so worried. You kept going, you know, he's, I'm worried he's gonna come and look and see why I'm here. And he thinks that I've got my gang and I'm hanging out and I'm meeting men and all that stuff. And he would say things like that to your children. I remember you told me that, that he was saying really derogatory. Awful. Horrible, awful things Bubble about things. what their mother was doing. I can't even imagine that. And then things really, really took a turn and really started escalating. Mm -hmm. So talk to us a little bit about that because that's kind of where the work mm -hmm. really came, hit, hit ahead. So pandemic hit and we started quarantining. And then I had this crazy person squatting in my garage, wanting to kill me, or at least attack me. And then I had this job that I loved and trying to figure out how to get back to the life I had, the life that I wanted for myself and my children. I knew I couldn't leave because I tried this last time and I was taken to court for abandonment. So I was like, we have to do this together. And he threatened you if you ever left oh. him. That, that all, all the time, that he was gonna burn the house down and, and take the kids, kill me. And I say that, I feel it rather flippant, but it became an everyday eight, nine hour just barrage. If we came downstairs to get food or to do some laundry, before we could retreat back upstairs, it was just this constant, we called it the monologues because we figured out different personalities. And so the monologues were just this constant stream of obscenities and him telling himself his story over and over again to the point where sometimes I was nauseated and, and throwing up. I was just like, I can't keep listening to this when I'm trying in my head to think about either work or hey, is it someone's birthday coming up? Is it uh, St. Patrick's Day? Like trying just to figure out holidays or is there a bill due? I, just the regular things, oh, we had a milk. So work <laughs> definitely began to slip uh, throughout 2020. And I was just trying to just manage and then we had some um, changes in leadership and I was like okay I have a fresh start like I can just I'll that's when I barricaded my door I screwed it shut I was like I'll just stay inside my room for the week and I changed teams and um, it was actually the day we were going to meet and we had um, a 10 o'clock meeting that I needed to be at to have announce all the changes and I was up at seven and I went downstairs because he was messing with the, with the Wi-Fi because he was adamant that the Wi-Fi, the modem had to be downstairs in the garage. So I went downstairs to address the modem issues. I was like, I have, it's a big day. I need this to be, I need you not to do these things. And that's when he secured me or restrained me in the garage. About 8.30 in the morning, I didn't get out till 1.30, which was way after the meeting. 
And I think we'd had some wind that day, and so I t told work that I had some power issues. And it wasn't later on. I had to talk to my manager, and, and I had to explain that he had deadbolted it from the inside, and that he said sexually assaulted me that morning. Couldn't get out till after. And I just remember sitting there sobbing because I know that, I knew that I couldn't, I couldn't fix it. I couldn't, it just seemed as the harder I tried to save my job, um, just the further, uh, the further it went away. And what did he, oh my God, I'm an ugly crier. My nose is gonna swell up and turn red. Um, he knew he was sabotaging you. Yeah. You were providing the livelihood for him and your family. What did he think was going to happen if you lost your job? I think he enjoyed seeing what he could do. And so it just became and it, like a cat and mouse game. He just enjoyed seeing what he could do. Um, and once he figured out about squatters' rights, there was no length to the, the means he would go to to acquire heavy, fragile, awful things. I had three oak dining room sets in my backyard. I had four by four mirrors and panes of glass because it was just more weight on the property. It wasn't that he was just hoarding. It was like and, he was trying to, you know, um, secure that he had yeah. all of his property there and it couldn't be moved easily. Right. No, yeah. I, he wanted took, to establish that he was, yeah. yeah, he was living there. If I tried to move his property, which I, said, I ended up doing this past summer, it was 18,780 pounds of stuff. There was pathways through our house. It was just, in so many ways I was like suffocating, but I was also physically suffocating. It was just, there was so much stuff um, all around us. And so, yeah, it was, it was as physical as it was um, like mental, emotional. What about um, the children? How were the kids managing through all this? The littles grew up with this environment. And so I'd always try to say like, we're going to get to a better spot. Like we're going to have a safer place. They knew they slept with me upstairs. They knew by the point that they really had um, good memories of what was happening. It was about the beginning of 21 after the incident. My son and I were talking and he was like, but mom, you're so good with computer stuff. Why can't, not why can't you fix this, but he's like, treat it, like think about computer stuff. And I was like, okay. So if we think about dad as like a malicious threat or some type of malware, how would you fix it? I would do things like this. And so we tried to, um, we made uh, a book where I would record more just observational behavior. And then I built this matrix where it was based on criticality and urgency of the personalities I thought he was kind of cycling through. There were five, five major ones. But then I started feeding it into my favorite like logging and data augmentation platform because they also have um, AI and machine learning tools to do like predictive analysis. Because I was trying to figure out, I, I know there's patterns to this behavior. We just need to figure out what his patterns are like. And so then we can figure out when we could celebrate Christmas, when I might have my keys back to go food shopping, but better predict um, the mood swings and the behavioral swings so that we know there's like a 60 to 72 hour period where he gets real sleepy. That'll be a good time. We go downstairs, we can get more food, <laughs> put it back in our mini fridges and stuff, or go do some laundry because um, the downstairs kind of became this like, DMZ or this like kind of gray zone where we would go down to get things, but then we mostly stayed upstairs. Did that work? That for, 
I got it down to within 85% accuracy. I could predict 12 hours ahead of when there was going to be a blowout. I'm like, this is dangerous. We can't have friends over. I need you guys to be upstairs. We had safe words. So if I said pineapple, it was everyone to my room, no questions asked. You just get up and go to my room. If I said paprika, it was each of the elders would pick a younger, and they had friends within walking distances. And I was like, whatever is happening, you take your friends, you go to your friends' houses, and then call 911. Because if something's happening where I need to defend myself, I was like, I can't do that if I don't know you guys are safe. Yeah. So you go to your friends' houses, and then we'll figure out from there. But both you go and call 911. So we just built systems so that it was easier for the kids to kind of plan, or at least hopefully plan, what days were going to be like, or use words that weren't uh, as scary <laughs> or as awful as some of the, like, the more appropriate adjectives. We yeah. just use code words, or we had a, it, the matrix ended up being like a color-coded system. That's amazing to me. <laughs> the way that your brain works and how you were trying to make this less scary to your children or just make it we have to put in a standard of practice and we are gonna organize the shit out of this and we're going to, mm -hmm. we're gonna plan and we're gonna protect ourselves the best way we have, we, possible. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just about locking yourselves in the room. No. I think that algorithm sounds amazing. <laughs> I remember one time I came and I picked, I was gonna pick you up and I was gonna come to the house and you were like, I can't come there. I just said, no, no, I'll meet you out, out front or on the side of the street, which I didn't question because I knew something was up. And then I came and you were standing out, I remember on, on the curb, like on the outside of the cul-de-sac. And when you got in, I was like, what's going on? And you're like, well, we had to put in a, like a trick door or a, a flip door in the backyard. That, okay. So you had taken the back fence mm. and you had made like a fake, you had built it into the fence so that if somebody bumped against it from the front, mm. you could get out and egress to the, the green mm. belt in the back and everyone could get away. Mm. And I'm like, in my head going, this is not a normal thing that you work on with your kids, right? And I remember it was so commonplace with you, and I thought it was brilliant for one thing, but the fact that that was the kind of things that you and your children had to do to put safeties in place. When you told me that, remember I said, Sarah, this, people don't live this way. They don't live this way. I don't know what to do because I can't protect my children if I'm not there. And people who have children know it is just, it's your handcuffed. It's all about keeping your kids safe, which is one of the reasons why so many moms and fathers mm -hmm. end up staying in a bad situation. Let's talk, start talking about the beginning of the end of that situation and what the catalyst was that actually mm -hmm. got you here today. Work was not going well. I was hearing a lot of people were coming to me because they knew that we were friends. And it had gotten to the point where people knew that you were not the same person. And because people don't have privy to what's going on, people speculate mm -hmm. and think all kinds of things, right? But it was getting to the point where as much as you were trying to do everything and be the person that you needed to be for your children and also at work, it just was no longer working. So talk to me about what happened. I ended up joining a new team. I mean, I love my new role. There was just, there were not, not enough hours in the day where I could keep this home life situation at bay and also do my job. I talked to my manager and my close friends were aware of what was happening, but 
I had talked to legal aides, CPS, family law. There was no end to my counselors, uh, to therapists. No one had a solution or knew like the next definitive step. And so I just was trying to hold on as long as I could until I could figure out what the next step might be. At the end of that year, I was placed onto like a performance management plan. I remember the, the day that it happened. I felt completely deflated and defeated. And I was so upset that this was going to be how it turned out. And I didn't want him to have that win. I didn't want him to be able to take this from me. For all of my trying to reach out to different agencies and try to figure out how to help my kids, I was like, I'm doing an awful job at this. And so it was the night before, the 9th of December, the night before I was supposed to have my first meeting with the manager. And I decided that he wasn't going to be able to take it from me, that I would do things my way. And I tried to kill myself. Did it unsuccessfully, obviously. And the next day I woke up and uh, I had had six missed phone calls from my leadership and a lot of this alert system we have for on call. And I went into meetings at six o'clock in the morning while throwing up and on my bathroom floor sick. And the fact that it was unsuccessful and you got up and you went to work anyways that day when you were recovering from a suicide attempt, that is just like, I, I can't, I don't even know what to say. I was so sick. And then I thought about a lot of things and I was like, okay, how do I move out of this? And even if I end up keeping my job, how do I then, what does the rest of my year look like? Am yeah. I, how do I, whom on my team do I tell? Who, who do I try to But it doesn't matter understand. how many people you tell. Until you, if you're still in that situation, it's just mm-hmm. going to keep happening, mm-hmm. right? So it doesn't matter what your intention is. It doesn't matter how, how much you try to fix the situation. Mm-hmm. There's no way that you can maintain why you're in a situation like that at home, mm-hmm. which ultimately became a deal breaker. So talk to me about that day. Um, so I had taken a month of leave at work, and then I came back, and the last month was a good month. Why did you take a leave, uh, the leave? So it was the middle of February, and I had a week left on my plan, and I knew that it- Oh, on the performance plan? Yeah. yeah, and I knew that it hadn't gone well. I knew that this was about to happen. That you hadn't refired? I mean, I, I knew in the back of my head all week that this was coming, um, but I kept trying to turn work in and trying my best to do whatever I could to get whatever I could in to help um, make them feel more confident that I was endeavoring to, to, to solve the problem. I even joked that it was going to take a, a planetary alignment. And there's actually, it was a planetary alignment yeah, that I week, remember. and I sent yeah. my manager a picture, and I was like, hey. And um, I don't think that he found this, <laughs> found it as funny as I did or as poignant. But that Friday morning, we had a larger team meeting and I turned my video on just because I wanted to see everyone. Not for them to know, but for me to just say goodbye to everyone. I remember that day. Yeah. And then we went straight into the next meeting and it opened up with just myself and my manager. And then I was still turning work in. He's like, Sarah, stop. 
I asked him, I'm like, please don't give up on me. I was like, I'm really close. I have a solution. And he just goes, we have to move forward with separation. Oh. And I just sat there because it was, it was final and I knew it. And then I closed my laptop and I just sat there for a while just sobbing because I didn't know what the next steps were or what to do. I didn't know who to call. Or, I just didn't... I just kept thinking back over the last six years and everything, and I was just, like, stunned and so sad that, that that was how it ended. Especially all that work from the time you left the farm and went to the military and got this dream job. And because of what was going on at home, this, like the dream was crashing down. It was crashed. <laughs> How was it at home? And did it get worse? He was elated and it solidified all the things that he thought were happening, of course, because now I've lost my job. I think I talked to the kids a little bit upstairs, mostly just cried. I ended up going downstairs and I was doing some laundry, just some house things downstairs. At this point, I just, I didn't care as much about being quick or quiet or, or getting back upstairs. I was like, this, what, what more? Like, this is, this is the worst day of my life. So I was downstairs, I ended up falling asleep uh, downstairs, which normally hadn't happened for over two years. I was always upstairs behind my, my double bolted door. And he'd been out, he'd, he'd known that I lost my job early that day. And he was kind of around me throughout the um, course of the day. Again, later at night, I remember if I, fell, I fell asleep downstairs. And I woke up to him having, sitting next to me on the couch and um, he began assaulting me. And I sat there because I had, by this point I'd had numbers to call or friends to reach out to. But they were all from work. And I was like. And I knew at this time, at this point in our relationship, what you were going through. Not to the extent that it was, mm -hmm. but I knew that you had this volatile situation at home, as much as you had told me. And all I could think about was how much worse was it going to get now that you were not working and you were home. And plus now you had the stress. You were paying the bills, you were paying for the rent, you were doing everything, and you know how to feed your family, keep a roof over your head, and you needed to survive. And then you were gonna be basically under his thumb. And I remember at that point, remember I had told you that there were some of us that thought that maybe you were having an addiction problem? I told you that because I care about you, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember saying to somebody, I'm going to do an intervention because I think that he's either gonna kill her, and I believe that 100%, he's either gonna kill her or she's gonna overdose intentionally. Mm -hmm. This is a breaking point and something bad is gonna happen. And you have people who loved you at work and we were all willing, we will do the intervention, we will be there. Mm -hmm. Remember when I called you? And we did our thing where you were in one car and I was in the other and we were just sitting and talking. And I told, and they finally got you in my car because that was my ulterior motive. 
And I said to you, I'm taking you away, remember? I said, I am not letting you go back to the house, even though your children are there, because I think you're going to die. I remember then because I was not convinced and I didn't want you to go back home. And you said to me, I want to tell you what I've been doing. And even though you said all I've been doing is curled up in a ball crying, mm -hmm. and I didn't know you'd been assaulted by him, and you said, I've made these phone calls mm -hmm. to these agencies, and we were moving it forward, and then all of a sudden I lost my job, and now they're saying, well, you can't file for custody of the kids because you don't have a source of income. And it was like 500 steps backwards, yeah. and you had get, were getting so close to finally being able to file and get a solution. Right? Mm -hmm. And I just remember you were like, what do I do now? I cried a lot. <laughs> um, we went out to get some food and we came home. My son was asking about his um, back to school necklace. And I was like, well, I said it was delivered. So head on in and I'll go in, ask. I think he got the mail. He usually likes to go through the mail. I came in the house and I approached uh, the garage, went in to ask about the mail and he started screaming and yelling that I had it and I was setting him up and all these things. And I was like, we just want his back-to-school necklace. They start in a couple days. And he flew at me and had me up against the garage door and the frame of the door and had me by the neck. And there were moments I couldn't breathe and I kind of yelped. And then my son came down and got in, in between us and got him to, uh, off of me enough that I got free and I ran to the front of the garage. My son got free and he comes up and he goes, Mom, we need to call him at one, your neck's really red. And so we ran around the front, I went in the front door and I grabbed the two littles, uh, went up to my room and we locked it and we called them in one. Two sheriffs came uh, that night and then fired a medical to, to check me out. And they ended up taking him into custody. And so this was like morning hours the next day. Remember coming downstairs and, and Daly was coming up and I was like, the whole house had just, just had to exhale, like this like breath of relief. It was just, it was calm. It was quiet, there was no loud music or power tools or air compressors. It was just a pause and just quiet. And it just, it felt so good. And I looked at my two elders and I was like, it's just us. Like we have that, we're home, it's just us. And they're like, how long? I'm like, I don't know anybody, anything on you who have to call additional people today. But I'm like, for right now, we can just be in our house and like make breakfast. I want to talk about when, when he was arrested. I mean, do you think that he was just reactive and angry, and, or do you think he was trying to kill you? It, his behavior had been escalating. He had done so early in the night, two hours prior, I'd come in from soccer practice and I was in my room, and uh, he came in and threw a bucket of markers on the floor and jumped on the bed and started, began choking me. And my youngest was in there, and she was yelling, Mom, get off Mom. So I could tell his behavior was escalating. So when he was choking you and your son came in and got him mm. off you, and then you called 911, mm. finally, after all this stuff that had been happening so many different times, mm. why was that the time? Is it because it was getting so bad that you thought, thought that this was really the time to call 911? We talked about it after he had locked me down the stairs and when my son and I are talking about it, and he goes, but it could just be you being clumsy and having fallen down the stairs. And I was like, there's no, it becomes a he said, she said situation. 
when he came with me in the garage and he was like, mom, your neck's really red. And I had very clear red handprints. I was like, this might be enough. And so we went upstairs and, he sh and I was looking in the mirror and I was like, I think it's enough. And he looks at me and he goes, I want to call. And I've always told them that if at any point they felt unsafe, we could call the police. I just told them, I don't know what will happen necessarily afterwards, but if at any point you feel unsafe, we can call. And at that point, my son was like, I want to call. That, that's what uh, led up to um, calling the police that night. Do you think that if your children hadn't said that they wanted to call the police, do you think that you would have called him on your own? I don't know. Because I had had worse injuries, he whacked me in the head, but my head hit forward on the uh, hinge of the door, and I had a three-inch gash across my head. But it can be explained a, multi a multitude of ways, and so it wasn't as definitive as this person attacked me. And so I didn't feel confident calling the police. I just wore a hat at work. Um, Think about what you're saying and the conditioning I know. that happened. That someone's attacking you, and they didn't have to convince you that if you called the police, that it can be explained as an accident. You told yourself, I'm not gonna report this because it can be explained away and they're not gonna believe me. I mean, you, he had gotten you to the point where you were explaining away his behavior. I was modeling out a multitude of outcomes that can happen because if I made the call and he wasn't taken away, I wouldn't get a chance to make a second call. So it had to be a good call. Especially after he'd always threatened you that if you called the police on him, he was gonna burn the house down. I had or to kill be. the kids. I know the circumstances of when the police came and he was arrested and he was taken away. And this is one of those situations where a really bad thing turned out saving your life. Because him trying to hurt you and possibly kill you completely turned your family's life around. So talk to me about so the first night he got arrested mm -hmm. and you guys were together from that point to where you're at now. The sheriff had listened paperwork with additional places and agencies I needed to call the next day. So I got out my, my date book journal and I was like, this is when it starts, guys. Everything goes in this book. Let's just make sure if we think of something, it's getting recorded because there's going to be a lot of moving pieces coming And what forward. was this? Explain it to me mm -hmm. one more time. What was this book, this it's journal? Just, it's just a date book. But prior to this piece, all my journals, my date books, my calendars, anything that you could imagine, a purse, a backpack, any number of items you had were constantly taken apart, taken from me, moved around the house. It was just a constant shuffling of things. And I'd given up writing things down because we didn't really follow through making plans, but also to the ephemeralness of having me having a date book. This isn't gonna last. But I had one saved. And so when he was taken away, I was like, it starts now. We do this, we figure it out, we call the numbers we have to, we, we uh, put up the applications, we file paperwork, we do whatever we have to do because the people that came tonight, they did their job. It's now, it's, it's our time to do, to, or our turn to do our job. So you were starting to say, okay, dad's gone. Mm -hmm. What are we gonna do to make sure he doesn't come back here? Is that what you were doing? Mm -hmm. We'd always talked about like different things we wanted to do, whether it's cosmetically in the house or in our lives, but then also the steps we'd have to take 
to um, protect ourselves and the different layers of protection that we would have to go and for when he came back from being in to jail. prevent him from coming back. Yeah, we knew that we would have to move his all his property off of out of the house because then there's no more squatters' rights. Oh, um, we have to potentially apply to different housing programs that can help us find rapid rehousing to get us out of the place that we're in because he knows his address. So that added layer of protection, that added layer of anonymity, it's not foolproof, but it's making sure that you're doing everything you possibly can to prevent something from happening or something, some, someone from attacking. And then just, a, uh, just different agencies, there's a, a criminal side, thankfully from, from that night, but it's also a civil side. And then there's the family law piece because all of this leading, or all this spills over into, I still don't have custody of my kids. I have to go and, and petition the courts for custody of the children. How long did you think that he would be gone? I mean, when he, when he was arrested, did you think that it was just gonna be temporary and then he was coming right back? Is that why you guys put this plan in action? Mm -hmm. If he were to post bail, it would have been at most maybe three days where he'd be, he would be in custody. And so I didn't know how everything was going to work out with the, the different types of arraignments and how protocols work. Mm -hmm. But I was like, we have a small window. We need to utilize our time, make the most of it, start taking trips to the transfer stations, call the, the different advocates we have and find out what, what the next steps are that we need to do to get down into our petitions, into our into, um, written testimony, what's been happening so that we can hopefully stave off his return. It's like finally do everything that you needed to do mm -hmm. because you didn't have the repercussions of him coming back or possibly coming back, but you mm -hmm. didn't have any repercussions because he wasn't in the house. We had our phones, we had our laptops, yeah. we had we could go downstairs to make food, we could sit and talk and not have to talk, about, talk in code or try to write things on, on whiteboards and then erase them because oh he couldn't know plans. Going back to the night that he was arrested, from what you've described how your house looked, what did the police think when they came to your house and saw that whole thing? And I mean, because I, I know that you said that he was mm -hmm. trying to tell the police that you were in a gang and that you guys had planned this whole thing to get him out. What did they think about your living conditions? They were pretty understanding, but because my son was involved, CPS came two days later, and I'm still, I was still recovering uh, from the attack, so I came downstairs, and I was just crying and tr trying to be apologetic and say, this is not how we live. I just, I'm trying to get things put back together and get a sense of normalcy for the children. And then she interviewed the kids uh, separately from me, and she said that, you know, at the, at the conclusion of the interviews, that the kids all loved me and they feel safe with me and that they were supportive of, of the five of us remaining. And so they, we ended up working with a family preservation specialist, just helped to give us assistance, got them, um, got us uh, resources for counseling, specific with the, uh, to DV trauma, again, housing programs, and then also um, advocates for Dawn. So I, I have a counselor now too. So it's more of like, a, like an advocacy approach. We don't have all the answers, but we have resources that help you find the answers. But still just a, a, a great deal amount of stress just to, get things back to having a living room, having a TV. It was just stacks of boxes and furniture everywhere. And you got rid of all of his things? 18,780 pounds of junk. Oh just my stuff. gosh. And then got things back in working order, yeah. just in terms of like the appliances, like the washer and dryer, like he took apart everything. It can be overwhelming, but we're just gonna pick a room, fix that room. And I was like, other rooms are, are awful. They're going to be awful. And if any, when people come, because we have people coming in out to talk to us, it's like, we explain, this is what we're doing here. This looks nice. That looks awful. That's how, 
dad left it. We're going to fix that. And it's just, we'll go room by room. Everything will be fixed and back to where we want it. And I was like, it's a minimalized, minimalization and organization, you know, learning experience, learning how to be like adaptable and flexible. <laughs> well, what is the situation now? Are you going to stay there? Are, are you going to move? He's still in custody, which has been lovely for us just to have the, the uh, peace of mind that he's in, he's in a certain place and he's not going to be like... And you're protected from him. Right, he's not popping up. Um, the kids can walk to their houses, their friends' houses, and we have the space to continue moving forward with our plans. But we are looking to relocate within the same town. Or somewhere. To, yeah, in the area. Yeah. But we are looking to relocate just because, again, of that added layer of anonymity. And so while it's his belongings are off the property, now it's just organizing and packing our stuff. I'm assuming so since you're doing this, but what, do you now have custody of the children? No. So there's four ongoing court cases. I, I have my day book and have a lot of appointments and, and, and court sessions, but it's just one day at a time and, and keep pushing, pushing forward and just putting pieces together. CPS closed their investigation and um, they did find four counts of child abuse, which is monumental not so much for the criminal side, but for my civil, my civil cases, in terms of regaining custody, permanent custody. Every once in a while, things pop up and you have hard days and then you have some really great days where there's significant progress made. So I'm just trying to, to, to when I talk to the kids, teach them about like, some days are great, some days are not so great, other days are awesome, but just keep pushing forward a little bit and eventually we'll land in a, in a safe spot and we'll land in a much better spot because we're together and we're safe. And that's the most important thing. Focus on any lessons we can learn from it and then let's push forward tomorrow. And um, I think we're in the, the, the closing in chapters yeah. of- 20 years. 20, 20 years. years of abuse. And the theme of this year, which has been getting rid of dead weight and finally moving forward with just being able to have like the, the, the life and the security that we want. Even though getting fired was crushing, think about if you hadn't been fired and you wouldn't have had that time back with your family. And also, even though it, it seems like it actually pushed for a breaking point in this whole horrible ordeal that you've been going through, there was something about you losing your job that literally forced him. It almost like it forced him past all. He crossed that line. Mm -hmm. Even though he'd been abusing you for, for years, he crossed a line. It escalated. And it actually fast-forwarded to where you are today. If that horrible mm -hmm. thing had not happened, who knows if you'd still be living, still trying to work, and still be living with him in the house. I think eradicating this person from my life took laser focus. And if I hadn't gone through that, I probably wouldn't be here today. It was good to get at the point where something's gonna happen where my health is, is so awful right now. There's just not enough, it ha it's, it's one or the other. Thankfully, the decision wasn't mine. <laughs> I think it was a turning point for, for a multitude of reasons, the greatest being with all my energy and all my focus. I do believe we'll be successful this time because <laughs> we've tried to leave in the past. I believe we'll be successful this time and have a, a much better 2023. <laughs>
Sarah, thank you so much for telling that story. You're so brave. The story that you've been trying to hide from people, I mean, people are now going to hear that story, but I'm hoping that there's a freedom there. And I wish with all my heart, and I know your children, that you guys all come through this lighter of spirit and just safe and able to start living your life at a normal life that you should have had. Our normal 20 crazy. years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we're close. I have to hug you. I have to get rid of this. <laughs> oh. After we finished taping Sarah's episode, I realized her and her family were still going through some challenges and I wanted to check in with her after some time had gone by to see how things were going. So yes, at the time of filming, uh, my story was very much still unfolding. And now that some time has passed, there have been some big wins and some resolutions, and also um, just some time to gain perspective and how to reflect on all the events of this year. There's been two additional charges added to the criminal court case, and so that's still pending, but he's not in a position where he can contact us or come back to the house. There was property at the house that he had, and so even though wasn't on the lease and I didn't want him there. Those rights outtrumped our rights to, um, to safety. With him being removed, it allowed us to remove 46,000 pounds of things, which again, removes squatters' rights, it removes, it removes that vulnerability from, from the picture. There's also been an additional CPS investigation and he was found guilty of four counts of child abuse. And pairing that with the civil and criminal charges, there's another pending case for involuntary termination of parental rights. So I believe that although it's been an arduous journey, I do see an end in sight and in a place that is good and safe and wholesome and allows us to, to heal from, this event, from these events, but also to forge ahead. So coming into the new year, we'll have another licensed driver in the house. Uh, we have a very avid soccer player and two little girls who are seven and eight going on 17 and 18. So yeah, just really excited for what lies ahead. If you have a story that needs to be told, send us an email at contact at mybestfell.tv. If we think it's a good fit, we'll reach out. Today's episode of My Best Fell was created by director of photography, Aaron Castillo, editor, Aaron Carlson, Sound, Brian Binning, Gaffer, Billy Miller, Production Assistant, Cindy Jones, and Technical Producer, Jessica Milanis.